in our studies thus far on baptism, um, we have established the fact that when we think about this topic of baptism, um, a proper understanding does not rest on a single proof text of Scripture, but rather a broad theology of how God deals with His people, how He deals with His church by way of covenant. There is a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament church with the key link being the covenant of grace. And what I hope for us to think about today is, is this link and then how in this unified church, how in the one covenant of grace, the children of believers are heirs of the promises of the covenant and therefore have the privilege of receiving the covenant sign of baptism. Now, when we study the Bible, we find that in the Old and New Testament, there is indeed one church. There is one covenant of grace. We, we heard that here in, a, in the section we read from Galatians chapter 3. And that means there's, there was always one way of salvation in Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. And so let's, let's start by thinking about this one church and one covenant of grace. Hopefully my notes will survive the, link, the, the leak up here. And, and I would submit to you from the outset, and I'm sure many of you will, will nod your head to this, uh, I'm convinced that our, our struggle to understand baptism is not mainly an issue with baptism, but it's, it's mainly a problem that comes as a result of the influence of dispensationalism. Some of you know what that is, but dispensationalism in its most uh, simple definition is this idea that uh, the, the Old and New Testaments are not really linked, that Israel and the church are separate, that God had a different plan in the Old Covenant and a different plan of salvation. And, and I would just submit to you right away how that is, that is disproven by the passage that we read in Galatians chapter Chapter 3, where it's underlined that the gospel promises were given to Abraham. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, I have a, a fairly lengthy quote here, but I think it's worth reading. And I, I, didn't, I didn't think I'd have room for it, so just try to listen here. This is from Vern Poitras, and he's talking about the influence of dispensationalism. He says, it is scarcely possible that those who labor in the gospel will be able to escape the necessity of ministering to those who have been influenced by modern dispensationalism. We live in an era flooded with dispensational preaching, books, schools, even study Bibles. The teaching of dispensationalism has successfully crossed the boundaries of most major Protestant denominations. Turn on the radio and you will hear a steady diet of this teaching being broadcast from most evangelical stations. Dispensational has a pervasive influence, not only extensively, but also intensively. It's usually the case that those who embrace its teachings as a system are affected in almost every area of their theological thinking. 
So pervasive is its effect on those who have become its pupils that even those who have come to see the error of its basic presuppositions testify that dispensational cobwebs have remained in their thinking for a long time after the initial cleaning out took place. My own experience bears witness to the truth of what I say. And I think many of us here can nod our heads to that. I, I can too. I grew up um, in dispensational churches, and, and I remember going to a Reformed college and, and hearing the Bible taught from a covenantal, biblical, theological perspective and thinking, whoa, how come no one ever told me this? And, and I, the way I would put it is I felt like dispensationalism put blinders on me so I couldn't really understand the Bible. I couldn't see the significance of the Old Testament. The Bible does teach that the church of Jesus Christ began all the way back in the garden. The church stretches back through the Old Testament. And we can see this so clearly in the New Testament. In his defense in Acts 7.38, Stephen refers to the church in the days of Moses. And he calls God, God's people the church in the wilderness. Uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, and it it's, was frequently quoted by Jesus and the apostles, we find the Greek word translated church frequently used to describe the people of God. Now, there is one church. There's one covenant of grace. There's one plan of redemption. Yes, as we, we read from the confession, chapter 7, yes, it was administered differently before the coming of Jesus. But our Old Testament brothers and sisters were still saved by faith, in the Messiah who was to come. Abraham understood that the righteous shall live by faith. And that means that Christ and his cross, they're the focal point of the scriptures and of the church in every age. I think it was our, our second service on, on Christmas. I, I did a brief homily from Revelation chapter 12. And what's interesting in that image where we have this symbolic image of this woman uh, clothed with the sun, this beautiful woman representing the church. And there's a woman, and then there's the coming of Christ, and then the same woman symbolizes the church in the New Testament. The same woman, Old Testament, New Testament symbolizes the church. The Holy Spirit um, it's interesting how often the Holy Spirit in the New Testament proclaims Christ with Old Testament language, underlining this fact that there was one covenant, one church. Uh, think about how John the Baptist announced Jesus' arrival with Old Testament terminology. Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus compared himself to the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. Uh, he spoke the gospel to Nicodemus using the language from Ezekiel 37. And we could go on and on. And that means we're knit together with the saints of the Old Testament who, like us, 
were saved by faith in the Messiah. They were waiting for him. We now look back upon his finished work, trusting in him. And this means that what happened at Pentecost, it wasn't the birth of the church, but it was a reorganization of the church in light of the finished work of Jesus. The church, in effect, or in some respects, was restructured. That was a big one. Are you guys seeing that so you know I'm not hallucinating? <laughs> it wasn't the, the beginning of the church. It was the, the reorganization of the church. There were, of course, changes in the administration of the covenant of grace. But there was no change in the essential nature of the church. The church of God stretches back through the Old Testament. Thank you. Again, I think it was the the second service on, in our Christmas service where I, I pointed out to you how the that promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent that that forms this paradigm by which we read the Bible in the Old Testament. It it sets our trajectory towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is one church, and we are knit together by the one covenant of grace. Now it's important for us to understand when we read the Bible, we get significant revelations of this covenant in the Old Testament. That, that gospel promise in Genesis 3.15, uh, that, that is uh, a revelation of the covenant of grace. Uh, we get further revelation when God speaks to Noah and makes a covenant with him. And then he revealed himself more fully to Abraham and then to Moses at Mount Sinai and then, then to David. All of these are revelations of the same covenant of grace. But as we heard in Galatians 3, it's very clear that God's covenant with Abraham represents a significant revelation of the covenant. Now, I want you to think back, and if you remember that God's revealing of that covenant. There, there is this weird ceremony that takes place. Remember, the animals are cut in half, and then it departs from the norm, because normally, two parties entering into a covenant, they both would walk through those cut pieces. And that was their oath, saying, I will uphold the terms of this covenant, or basically, may I be like this animal that's cut in half. But what happens in that covenant ratification ceremony with Abraham? Abraham doesn't walk through it with God, but he is what? He's sleeping. And there's this flaming torch and a, a fire pot, smoking fire pot that go through there. Now, uh, kids, you can get this. Think about uh, a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot and think of the exodus. How did God lead his people in the Exodus? A pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. Again, that's a, that's a greater revelation of how he showed himself to Abraham. That was God passing through those cut pieces, declaring that he would uphold the terms of that covenant and also pay the penalty for those who break that covenant. It was a gospel covenant. 
that significant departure from the norm where the two parties walk through tells us that this was the covenant of grace. And this is significant because Abraham is, is referred to over 70 times in the New Testament. Often in the New Testament, Jesus finished work of salvation, the promised work or the promises of the gospel, they're linked with God's covenant he made with Abraham. And a key concept in this regard in the New Testament is that all of God's people, Jew or Gentile, past or present, are blessed in accordance with the covenant that God made with Abraham. The Lord promised in this everlasting covenant that Abraham and his, his descendants would know God's blessings on the basis of faith. Genesis 15, 6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And we need to let this help sweep those cobwebs of dispensationalism out of our out of our brains, that no one in the, New or in the Old Testament received the blessings of the covenant, received salvation on the basis of personal merit or their works or any ceremony. It was the same as in the New Testament. Faith, the mercy of God alone, His grace alone, Helpless sinners, God stooped low to save them, and they need to trust Him. Sinners would know salvation by expressing faith in their God and in His ability to save. And that's why the New Testament repeatedly takes us back to the gospel promises made to Abraham. Paul reminds us in Galatians 3.8 that God said to Abraham, and this is Genesis 12.3, all nations will be blessed through you. And the everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham, that continues to be in effect and it covers us as well. Paul says in Galatians 3.9, those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So this means that we who have come to trust Christ as our Savior, that we are blessed in accordance with that same covenant that God revealed to our father, Abraham. We are his spiritual descendants. Paul writes again, Galatians 3, 6, and 7, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he goes on to say that those who believe are children of Abraham. There's no other way to be a child of God than to be in this same covenant through faith. There's no other covenant of salvation. And unless we're part of that same covenant... Unless we live by faith, then we cannot know the blessings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul concludes the chapter, Galatians 3.29, saying, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according 
to the promise. Now this tells us that that Abrahamic covenant is very significant. It takes center stage, so to speak, in the New Testament. And what's significant about that covenant is there was a sign given to strengthen that promise. And it was the sign of circumcision. And because this was a revelation of the covenant of grace and because it is an everlasting covenant, well, that sign has now been changed to reflect the finished work of Christ. It has been changed to baptism, but the promises remain. And so let's secondly then consider the place of children in the church or children in the covenant. And what we see, and again, keep this link in mind, what we see is that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that the children of believers are included in God's covenant promises. And therefore, they are considered part of the church. We know in the Old Testament that the children were to be given the sacrament of circumcision at eight days old. But I want you to listen to uh, some of these uh, covenant promises that are given to God's people, and, and there's, a, there's a common scene here. They're, they take place in the context of corporate worship, the uh, assembled body of the church together. And let's, let's listen. Let's listen to these promises. And I want you to listen for phrases like, to your offspring or to your little ones. Genesis 17, 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Genesis 17, again, verses 11 and 12. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. We fast forward to the book of Deuteronomy and the, the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy 29, we find God renewing his covenant with his people at Moab. And again, they were assembled as a church. And we read, you are standing here today, all of you before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones. Now, there were covenant promises given, included the little ones. Joshua 8, 35, we find a similar setting. The covenant is being renewed in the context of an assembled church. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Now we fast forward to the New Testament and we need to remember that many of the epistles were sermons. So these were sermons that were read in worship. Some of these congregations were fledgling congregations. They might not have had a 
a permanent pastor in place. And so very often Paul, he would write a letter like Ephesians and it would be read in the hearing of the people. And I want you to listen to this and you may not have ever thought of this, but okay, here's a sermon. Ephesians is a sermon that was read in worship. And listen to who is addressed during worship. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Clearly, this idea continued so much so that Paul included in his sermon a message to the little ones, to the children. And so as we see this link between Old Testament church, New Testament church, as we see one covenant of grace, we see that the children of believers have always been included in God's covenant promises and they were considered by him to be part of the church. We know that in the Old Testament, the children of believers received the sacrament of circumcision. And we know that in the new covenant, in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that the privileges of believers, including children, cannot be less than they were in the old covenant. I, I want us to, to grasp that. And I think a, a, a misconception is that uh, the little girls weren't included in the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. They they were included. They just didn't get to receive the sign. But I would submit to you, because the privileges of the church and the privileges of children in the covenant are by necessity greater in light of the finished work of Jesus, my submission to you today is that children continue to have a place in the covenant of grace in the church and they have, they have the privilege, both boys and girls, of receiving that sign of circumcision. We'll come back next week and think a little bit more about what circumcision was and how it connects to baptism. But for now, one church, one covenant of grace, one place for children in that covenant. Let's pray. Lord, we... Thank you for your promises. We thank you for the covenant that you have entered into with us. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the signs and seals of that covenant you give to us. Lord, we pray that you might continue to bless our study of this subject of baptism. Lord, that it might not be some abstract theological topic for us, but it might cause us to have a greater appreciation for our baptism and what it means, what it symbolizes, how it points us to our union with Jesus and the cleansing that he brings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.